Imagine with me for a moment. What would it look like if we drafted Jesus to run for president in 2020? Now you can imagine the signs, right? Son of God, 2020. You wonder who he'd pick for his running mate. Got to be Peter, James, or John. And you wonder if James and John would be upset when he picked Peter, right? You wonder what Jesus' platform would be. What would be his, what, what would his website say on the issues? What would his campaign look like? What would his stump speeches look like? And of course, he wouldn't run for president. <laughs> but that's part of the, the point. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world categorically different than any other leadership style or leader in our world. But I also have to wonder in what ways, if he did somehow run as president, in what ways would he make us upset or angry? Because he would contradict or confront how we would want him to be a leader, how we would want him to, to run his campaign, how would we be offended by his platform, by the issues? We often may think that we would line up just right with Jesus on how he is on the issues, and yet, maybe we need to flip that and consider maybe we're not lined up with him on some of the issues. I think that would come to light if something like that happened. We would see all the ways we were wrong about the kind of leader Jesus is and the kind of kingdom he would have. This is what, uh, in a sense, we see in this particular passage. As these crowds are gathering around Jesus and proclaiming him as the Messiah, and yet they have deep misunderstandings about who he is and about what his kingdom is like. I hope to show you in this passage, by Jesus' actions and by his words, he is confronting these misunderstandings. He says some really difficult things about how his kingdom works and about what his followers look like. And I don't think those in the crowds were ready to hear anything like this. Jesus and his kingdom are so different that he confronts our own natural thoughts and hopes and ideas, our sinful priorities and seeks to rearrange them to match his. And we need this, don't we? We need Jesus to confront us. We need him to conflict with our ideas when they are wrong. We need him to adjust our mindsets when it comes to who he is and his kingdom. So to do this, we will consider Jesus' kingdom. What is his kingdom like? And we'll see its scope, the scope of his kingdom, its method, how it works, and its citizens. What his followers, what his citizens look like in this kingdom. So consider with me then first the scope of Christ's kingdom in verses 12 through 19. In other words, how far does this kingdom extend? What is the scope of this kingdom? Just a little bit of background before we get into that, though. Consider where we are in the book of John. Jesus began his ministry in chapter 2 with the changing of water into wine. And ever since then, he has been performing certain signs. And yet, 
As many signs as Jesus performs, the people still reject Him. They, they can't get past His words often. He will do signs and the people flock to Him and say, Wow, this is someone we want to follow. And then He'll speak words, difficult words, like, You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Or like, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. He speaks difficult words and the people scatter. And yet all along, he knows his flock. And his flock hear his voice and they follow him. Many commentators have called this first section around chapters 2 through 12 a book of signs where Jesus is performing various signs and yet the signs are never enough. People are yearning for signs. Give us some sign to confirm your identity, the Jewish leaders say. They don't believe he is the Messiah. And we came most recently from this last and greatest sign of all. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. A man he could have saved if he had gotten there in time. And he speaks a word, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth from the grave. He raises a man from the dead. And we think, well, of course you have to believe in him now. And yet we shouldn't be so quick to say what they should or shouldn't have done because who's to say what we would have done? They still reject Jesus. In fact, they use this to now say we need to put him to death. And not only that, we need to put Lazarus to death too because that's causing too many people to believe. Totally irrational. And yet sin and unbelief is unrational, unreasonable. Jesus performs this sign. The Jewish leaders now want to kill him even more. And yet, there are still crowds gathering around Jesus. And we read here, as Jesus begins to enter into Jerusalem, there are crowds celebrating him as the king of Israel. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They wave palm branches, which from... Leviticus chapter 23 is in celebration of what Jesus did in rescuing his people out of Israel. They were commanded to wave palm branches and rejoice in Yahweh who had saved them. Perhaps these people are seeking another sort of exodus, another sort of physical exodus where they would be rescued from the oppressors in Rome. They're looking to Jesus as perhaps this will be the one who will do what Yahweh did long ago. They quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is he. This is the one. They're looking to him. They're, they, they're on the right track. They're looking to the right person. Blessed is he. He is coming in the name of Yahweh to save us. He is the king of Israel. And yet there are hints the palm branches, uh, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, which cause us to think that they misunderstand the true identity and purpose for which Jesus has come. They are expecting a more nationalistic, earthly king who will rescue them. They misunderstand who Jesus is. And then, in response to what they are doing, what they are saying, these shouts of praise, save us, Jesus sits 
on a donkey. He goes and finds a donkey and sits on it. And this, I say, is a response because I think John lays it out in that way, especially with the quote that follows Jesus' action of sitting on a donkey. The author gives this commentary in verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. He's, he's pointing us back to a passage of Scripture or two. Verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That passage, uh, that reference is back to Zechariah 9.9. If you would turn there for a moment, it's right before Malachi. It's not really hard to find. Just flip over uh, a few books of the Bible. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You notice something else about that quote, though, don't you? John quotes it as, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Where Zechariah, we have, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. We wonder what's going on here. And maybe we'll start thinking, well, is there some other place where we read, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. And we do. In fact, you just have to flip over a few more pages uh, toward the front of the Bible to Zephaniah. Turn to Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 14 and following. You see some of the same language there, and yet we notice a few differences as well. There we see, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Oh, that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. You have to wonder, is John, is John quoting from Zechariah or from Zephaniah? Or is he quoting from both of them? Does he want to signal something else here? And I think he does. He wants to signal that Yahweh is among us. Yahweh is here in the flesh. He is the king of Israel, but it's not what you thought it was. He's not the sort of king you thought he was. He's not a nationalistic, earthly king. He is the sovereign over all the earth. And he is not just a nationalistic king who will rescue this particular ethnic people called Israel. He's doing something bigger than that. Did you notice in Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter uh, 3 verse 9. At that time I will change the speech 
of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. He is not simply a nationalistic king. He is the universal sovereign over all who is gathering all sorts of people into this kingdom. People from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, as we are told in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And do you know what they're holding? They're holding palm branches to worship this one who has come to save his people. They misunderstand the sort of king he is. They miscalculate the scope of his kingdom. It's not narrow, it is broad and includes a diverse sort of people. Any and all who will come and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he confronts us as we think about the scope of his kingdom. First of all, he confronts us in our, if we begin thinking nationalistically, if we begin to think things like making America Christian again, or building our own kingdoms like building our own church, if, if we're centered in on building our own kingdoms or centered in on building Christ's kingdom for him, we misunderstand the sort of king he is in the scope of his kingdom. Jesus confronts us when we consider his kingdom, the scope of his kingdom. He confronts us in, a, in an indirect way as we consider the, our own kingdoms we're trying to build for ourselves. How would Jesus confront you in the sort of kingdom you're building? In your pursuits, in your energy? Consider in your work life, in your business. Would Jesus confront you and say that, you know, you are really seeking to build your own kingdom here for your own glory? Or what about in your own personal life? How would Jesus confront you in the kingdoms you're seeking to build for yourself, for your own pleasure or enjoyment, for your kingdom of wealth and possessions You're amassing things in a respectable way, in a Christian sort of way, and yet all of your hope and joy are in these things. You're building a kingdom for your own reputation and what other people think about you. How would Jesus confront you when it comes to his kingdom? But we move now to verses 20 to 24, and we want to consider the method of Jesus' kingdom. In other words, how does it work? How is he building his kingdom? What, what is he doing to grow his kingdom? The Greeks come to Jesus, the Pharisees proclaim, see, the whole world is going after him. Again, ironic speech about the universality of Jesus' kingdom. And here, even the Greeks are coming after him. But this is not only a sign of the universality of Christ's kingdom that he will save not only Jews, but Gentiles, anyone and everyone from any language or ethnicity who will come to him in faith. But it also is a signal to Jesus, it seems in some way, that it's time to start fulfilling his purpose in another way. You see, the the Greeks come to him. They come to his disciples. His disciples come and tell Jesus. And then what do we see In verse 23, how Jesus responds to them when the Greeks come. Jesus answered them, the hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is a signal somehow for Jesus that his hour has now come. It's time to begin his path to the cross. You remember times before we have heard Jesus say, my time has not yet come, chapter 2, with the, at the wedding of Cana. What does this, have to do, what is this wedding and this lack of wine have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. Or in chapter 4, verse, or 7, verse 30, or chapter 8, my, my hour is not yet. And now he comes to the point where he says, now my hour has come. It is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And there's been hints all along the way that his hour has to do with his suffering, has to do with something bad that's going to happen to him. And so it might be a little confusing for us as we see the hour has now come for the Son of Man, this this picture of the divine one, to be glorified. I thought it was going to be something bad. I thought it was going to be something having to do with your suffering. But he speaks about this glorification and further elaborates about this glorification in verse 24 by telling a parable. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. So it is about his suffering, his death. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is what it means that his hour has come. This is what it means that the Son of Man will be glorified. First, he will be glorified in being lifted up on the cross to die, to bear much fruit. He will be glorified in his resurrection. He will be glorified in his ascension. And as he sits at the right hand of God, he will be glorified. But first, the first kind of movement in this process is his glorification upon the cross. His own death. He tells this parable, which appears to mean death is a means to gaining life. To producing fruit. But he is speaking about his own death. Not just a grain of wheat. Unless I die, unless I go forward and die, I will not bear much fruit. And this is the glory of Jesus Christ. We sang this morning, show us your glory. Show us your power. God, come. And here we see the glory of God in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in the death of Jesus Christ, which bears much fruit. As I plan out my fall garden, I haven't decided what I'm going to plant yet. I think I'm too late on some things. Uh, I always, I'm always too late on planting stuff in the garden. But if I take these seeds, they'll do nothing in my hand. They'll do nothing as they sit in, inside in, in the cabinet. They'll do nothing unless I take them and bury them. Unless I plant them in their grave, so it, so it were. Jesus himself is saying, unless I die, unless I am crucified and put in the grave, I will not bear fruit. But if I do, if I die, I will bear much fruit. And this is how Christ is building his kingdom. By his death. By his suffering and death and resurrection. This is how Christ builds his kingdom, brothers and sisters. Now, long ago, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And by this he means, 
he was speaking to those who were persecuting Christians, saying, you can't stamp us out. The more you kill us, the more we're going to grow. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I would amend that just a little bit. Who am I to amend Tertullian? The blood of the Messiah is the seed of the church. The blood of Jesus Christ, the almighty God in human flesh, is the seed of the church, and by his death, he bears much fruit. Consider the fruit that Jesus brings forth from his death. First, he brings forth his resurrection from the dead. Then he brings forth his ascension into heaven. Then he brings forth the fruit giving us his Holy Spirit to change our hearts so that we would see his glory, so that we would rejoice in who he is for us. Consider the fruit, your forgiveness of all of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Consider the fruit of your justification. You have been justified before God Almighty. Though you were a sinner deserving his wrath, he has justified you by his grace through the death of Jesus Christ. Consider your fruit, your sanctification, brothers and sisters. He is making you into the image of Christ. He's shaving away your sinful parts and he is adding to you the fruit of his Holy Spirit which dwells within you. Consider the fruit that has been given to you by the death of Jesus Christ. Salvation for eternal life with him a resurrection body. You will be raised from the dead, this mortal life, this mortal flesh, which decays and is groaning, waiting for our full adoption as sons and daughters. We will have it, and we will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And this is the fruit of the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the method of his kingdom. This is how he grows his kingdom. He is confronting the crowds who think that maybe he will overthrow Rome by military force or political power or some other means, he is saying, no, my kingdom is of a different world. It's not of this world. My kingdom is built upon my death and resurrection. We should do well to consider then. Ultimately, Christ's kingdom is not built by us. We cannot build Christ's kingdom. We cannot grow or expand Christ's kingdom. It is built by Jesus Christ and his work that he has done for us. Jesus says, it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He gives it to us. He builds it by Christ. It's not built by military might or political force. Consider this, brothers and sisters, as we engage in politics. It is right and good for Christians to engage in politics. We shouldn't shrink back from that, and yet we should engage in politics as though we were not engaging in politics. In other words, we should understand the relevancy. It can only have so much relevance. Ultimately, Christ builds his kingdom by his death and by his resurrection. Be engaged in politics. Be engaged in government. But do so as one who knows there is a kingdom that is not of this world. Do so knowing that this world is temporary and that Christ's kingdom is eternal. And brothers and sisters, consider how this impacts 
what we do with our, our speech and with our acts. This is why we must proclaim and teach and tell the death of Jesus Christ until he returns. This is why we practice the Lord's Supper regularly, because this is the proclamation of His death, and this is what bears fruit for His kingdom. We must be eager to speak it to others around us, eager to to speak of Christ and His work for us. Apologetics, of course, have their value, giving a defense for why you believe what you believe, but ultimately it is Christ and His work and speaking the good news of Jesus Christ which will change hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is why you need to hear the gospel. This is why you need to regularly hear the work of Christ as as you gather together at church and hear the preaching of the gospel. Because the hearing it, and particularly the hearing it with faith, is actually doing something in you. Don't ever leave the gathering at church and you think nothing happened there. If Christ Jesus was proclaimed, then His Spirit was here, and he is working in all of those who hear with faith. He's giving you faith even now to hear and believe that Jesus Christ builds his kingdom by his own blood. And we must rejoice in this. We must rejoice in how Christ builds his kingdom. As I said, this is Christ's glory, his death on the cross, his humility, his his humbleness. This is how Christ is accomplishing his purposes. Lord, please produce fruit in us by the proclamation of this good news. And if you are not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then you should turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, turn away from your sins, and cling in faith to Jesus who died on the cross for sinners. If you are a terrible sinner, then you should know this. Christ died for terrible sinners. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will save you. If you are a Christian and you're doubting your salvation because of your sin or because your own lack of faith, turn away from being introspective at this moment and behold the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross, crucified for sinners. Here is your salvation, not in the strength of your faith, but in the strength of your Savior who bled and died for you. This is how he bears much fruit, brothers and sisters. But he, he turns rather quickly and imperceptibly to speaking of his own death, to speaking about how his followers will follow him, about what they will look like in verses 25 and 26. Consider the kingdom's citizens. In other words, what do they look like? Verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What do his citizens look like? They look like those who do not love their own lives. So strange, isn't it? The way Jesus speaks. They look like those who hate their lives in this world. In other words, in this sinful, broken world, their lives in this this sinful world, whoever loves their life in this world destroys it. And whoever hates their life in this world 
preserves it to eternal life. Elsewhere in the book of John, he has spoken of those who love darkness rather than the light. He's spoken of those who love the world and the things of this world. He's spoken of those who love their own glory or the glory that comes from men and not from God. Here he speaks of those who love their own lives versus those who hate their lives. Jesus confronts us. Do you feel the sting of these words? Uh, Are you convicted that when you're not careful, when you are at your, your worst, when you're not even at your worst, you recognize a love for your own life in this world. A love for pleasure. A love for things. You, you pursue things which will make you happy in this life. And sometimes it's disproportionate to what you know it should be. Jesus confronts us here. That instead of loving our own lives, to love and treasure Christ and his kingdom. Above all things, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Puritan William Gurnall says, temporal goods, temporal good things are not the Christian's freight, but his ballast, and therefore are to be desired to poise and not load the vessel. In other words, good things in this life are not meant to be stored up for yourself. Good things in this life are meant to be used as tools to poise us to increase our appetites for Jesus Christ, to point us to him and to ultimately who he is. And so as I considered recently going to the beach, my vacation, one of the favorite things in all of this life I love to do, I had to preach to myself regularly, this is a foretaste. This is not the real thing. This is not your joy. This points to a greater joy. And when you grab that greater joy, Jesus Christ, you will think this is child's play. You will think this is nothing. Brothers and sisters, do not love the things of this world. Do not love your lives in this world. Treasure Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. Let's pray together.